Yes, Virginia, this election will tell us a lot on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add Ike to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 377 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. You might have thought Joe Biden versus Donald Trump took place about 360 days ago, but you'd be wrong. It's still going on, at least with Trump supporters and Trump himself, convinced that the 2020 election was stolen. Trump spends every interview and every rally talking about how he was legitimately re-elected last year, but it was taken away from him. He riles up crowds who are ready to storm the Bastille. Here's how one person put it this week at a Turning Point USA Charlie Kirk rally in Boise, Idaho. At this point, we're living under corporate and medical fascism. This is tyranny. When do we get to use the guns? No, and I'm, and, I, and I'm not, that's not a joke. I'm not saying it like that. I mean, literally, where's the line? How many elections are they going to steal before we kill these people? So, no, I, 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 no, hold on. I, I'm, no, stop. Hold on. You know things are crazy when even Charlie Kirk thinks you've gone too far. And now Republicans are bracing for a possible defeat in Tuesday's Virginia governor's race, a tight contest between Democrat Terry McAuliffe and Republican Glenn Youngkin. Youngkin could very well win, and if he does, it was a fair election. But if he doesn't, we know why. The election was rigged. This is what we've become. We could roll our eyes and decide that these unnecessary recounts in Arizona and elsewhere are just a waste of time. We can recoil at the events of January 6th and declare that these people are trying to do Trump's bidding. But it's more insidious than that. When every election is seen as fraudulent, when violence or the threat of violence becomes a logical next step, when laws are being passed to suppress the vote, when partisan legislatures become the arbiter for which election is legitimate and which isn't, we're in big trouble. Democrats in Washington should see this as a serious threat to the republic, but they're too busy fighting among themselves. It's not unusual for political junkies and journalists alike to tout the importance of the Virginia gubernatorial contest, justified or not. Historically, a conservative blue state that turned red starting with the Nixon years, and more recently, a purple state that is leaning blue again, Virginia gets over-the-top attention because it's basically the only game in town. It's often seen as a bellwether for how the country feels about the president who was elected the year before, For decades now, if there's a Republican in the White House, Virginia elects a Democratic governor. If a Democrat is president, a Republican is elected governor. The only time since the 1970s that outcome didn't happen was in 2013, when Democrat Barack Obama was president and Democrat Terry McAuliffe went on to win the governorship. 
McAuliffe is back this year looking for a second non-consecutive term. But Virginia's growing Democratic wave, four in a row wins for president, two straight for governor, is in jeopardy. Republican newcomer Glenn Youngkin is making it a close race, arguing that it's time for a change for the Commonwealth and that McAuliffe is a relic from the past. For his part, McAuliffe is doing everything he can to tie his opponent to Donald Trump, who strongly backs Youngkin and says that a Youngkin victory would bring Texas's anti-abortion policies and Florida's anti-vaccine mandate policies to Virginia. For all the ballyhoo of the past, this one does feel more significant than most. Not only could this be seen as a barometer of how Biden is doing, it could also tell us whether McAuliffe's attempt to tie his Republican foe to Trump can work, as it did last month for Gavin Newsom in California in next year's midterms as well. It is the most important contest of this off year, and joining us to discuss what's at stake is Bob Holsworth, a managing partner of the firm Decide Smart and one of the smartest analysts on Virginia politics anywhere. Bob, welcome back to The Political Junkie. Uh, great to be with you today, Ken. Thank you, Bob. And, you know, you and I both have long memories, and we both know that everyone always gets so excited about the race for governor of Virginia because it portends something gigantic. And, but, but sometimes I think the attention is justified. I think of Doug Wilder's victory in 1989 and, and how issues of race and, and abortion played a big role in uh, Bill Clinton's win three years later. And it's exciting again, because assuming Donald Trump is going to remain the focus of the Republican Party for years to come, we may find out if it's smart politics for Democrats to pin their opponents to the former president. Uh, exactly. I, you know, clearly, Terry McAuliffe has made a basic equation of Donald Trump and Glenn Youngkin, saying you know, they're essentially one and the same, that uh, Youngkin is simply a kinder, gentler version, you might say, of Trump. Um, and at the same time, on the Republican side, if they could possibly win in Virginia with a candidate who has not completely disassociated himself with Donald Trump, he hasn't done what I call the full Larry Hogan or Charlie Baker, that he could somehow find a way to appeal to the Trump base while at the same time obtaining suburban defections uh, from the Democratic Party. This would be a huge opportunity for Republicans nationwide and a huge blow to the Democrats. First, let's start talking about the McAuliffe strategy. Trump lost Virginia by 10 points last year. He's endorsed Youngkin. And, and to make McAuliffe's case even stronger, at a Youngkin rally last week, supporters pledged allegiance to a flag that flew at the January 6th insurrection. I also want to invite Kim from Chesapeake. She's carrying an American flag that was carried at the peaceful rally with Donald J. Trump on January 6th. I ask you all, I ask you all to rise and join us as Mark Lloyd leads us in the pledge. Face the flag. I pledge allegiance. So, yes, Youngkin said that using the flag was a mistake, but what do you make of McAuliffe's strategy? Well, this has been, as you said, Ken, the, the essence of McCall's strategy. Um, he, you know, he's really doubled down on it, too. There have been a number of people who have said, you know, they want to hear more from him about what he's going to do, about the issues such as jobs and the economy and education. And he had a lot of big plans about that. 
uh, on its website, but certainly if you look at the television ads, they've by and large been connecting uh, Glenn Youngkin to Donald Trump. So he's doubled down on this because he obviously must have some polling to say, uh, especially in the northern Virginia suburbs, that the hangover with Donald Trump is going to extend uh, well beyond uh, 2016. And so that is what he's done. It does seem, if we look at some of the early votes, to be making an impact in northern Virginia. But whether it's having the same uh, impact in the Richmond area suburbs and in the suburbs around uh, Virginia Beach and Norfolk, that's an open question right now. Democrats keep talking about, well, you know, it worked for Gavin Newsom in California last month, but but Virginia is not nearly as deep blue as California. And, and Glenn Youngkin is hardly as threatening as Larry Elder was in California. Yeah, I think that's the, the challenge for the Democrats. Youngkin uh, does not have the same kind of uh, political history or ideological history uh, on the right that, Lar- that uh, Larry Elder had um, by, by any means whatsoever. And that makes it, I think, a little more difficult. Though at the same time, when you take a look at where Youngkin's support is in the polls, where he's doing the best, He's doing the best among the Trump base. So it's important for him, even while he's courting these suburban defections, to make sure that he gets a large turnout there. Because if you take, again, um, most of the polls and surveys are showing that Youngkin's strongest level of support is with uh, white voters without college degrees, very much uh, the same demographic that propelled Donald Trump to the presidency. The challenge for Youngkin, however, is that that's not enough in Virginia. Uh, you can't win simply with that demographic in Virginia, because Virginia is one of the most highly educated states in the country. We have the uh, sixth most highest level of um, college graduates. We're fourth in terms of postgraduate, people with postgraduate degrees. They normally have, uh, in recent years, supported Democrats. And so Youngkin is trying uh, in these suburbs to run what I would call sort of a new version of the culture war, emphasizing issues that haven't been in the political arena before, like uh, critical race theory, suggesting that uh, McAuliffe doesn't think that parents should be able to have influence on school curriculum, issues that typically appeal to suburbanites but have sort of a culture war element to it, so at the same time appealing to the Trump base. Stacey Abrams has come into the state from McAuliffe. That what you all do here over the next nine days will determine the next four years for this country. It will determine the next decade of rights and opportunity, or it will signal that we are going backwards. As has Biden. He's off your elections. The country's looking. This is a big deal. Terry and I share a lot in common. I ran against Donald Trump, and so is Terry. And I whipped Donald Trump in Virginia, and so will Terry. And, and Barack Obama talked about warding off exhaustion and apathy. If John Lewis wasn't tired, we can't be tired. If the folks who, who had to fight for, for union rights across the country aren't, weren't tired, we sure can't be tired. If the suffragists weren't tired, we can't be tired. So go out there and fight 
and work because you're going to decide this election and the direction of Virginia and the direction of this country for generations to come. Don't sit this one out. You know, clearly, Bob, McCullough feels it helps his campaign to bring in Democratic Party heavyweights. Youngkin is in more of a tight spot. I mean, he would never bring in Trump, who remains unpopular in the state, but he also doesn't want to alienate his supporters. I mean, Youngkin will say that McCullough must be desperate if he needs national party backing, but there is really this tightrope that Youngkin is walking regarding Trump and Trump supporters. Yeah, Trump is um, so important to Youngkin in so many ways because essentially without that turnout of the rural Trump base, Republicans don't do well enough. But at the same time, because it isn't enough to win, uh, Yunkin is walking what people call a Trump tightrope here, that on one hand, he continually courts the Trump base, um, and I think you're going to see him do that a lot in the last week of the campaign with mailings, per se, But at the same time, with the television campaign, he's positioning himself quite differently in the metropolitan areas, positioning himself as somebody who is simply responding to a Democratic Party that's moved uh, too far to the left on education issues or on crime issues or on tax issues, a very uh, much more traditional Republican message, you might say. And that's that's the tightrope that he's walking The polls seem to show that he's doing a pretty good job of that. But at the same time, the Democrats believe that if they can get their voters out in Virginia, if they can overcome what Barack Obama called the complacency and the fatigue, they're going to win this election. And they think they might win it by three, five or six points. But it really depends on the Democrats uh, addressing the fatigue among their voters, as as, as, uh, Barack Obama talked about it, and ensuring that people understand what the stakes of this election are and what the Democrats are arguing, that Yunkin is really Trumpism, even if he's not directly bringing Donald Trump into the Commonwealth. At the same time, you know, Biden's numbers are falling. And obviously, Virginia being so close in proximity to the D.C., everybody's watching the fact that the Democrats can't get their act together in passing big parts of the Biden agenda. The, the Democratic disunity on Capitol Hill, as well as possible thoughts about apathy in Virginia, is that, is that significant worries for the Democrats? The disunity on Capitol Hill and the disarray that the Democrats have had and their difficulty in passing uh, large chunks of the Biden agenda have probably been the single most problematic aspect of the campaign uh, for Terry McAuliffe. Uh, Virginia politics has become increasingly nationalized of late. And what we've seen in the polls is this. As Joe Biden's numbers have cratered among independents, Terry McAuliffe's numbers have declined among independents in Virginia. Go back three months, and McAuliffe had a comfortable seven, eight, nine-point lead in the polls. That seems to have narrowed, and the one place where it's really narrowed is among independents, because while McAuliffe was leading among independents in August, in the polls he's now behind among behind uh, with independents um, as we get to the final days of the campaign. And so... The challenge that the Democrats have faced nationally is, in my mind, the biggest challenge that Terry McAuliffe is facing in this campaign. You know, I'm listening to myself and I keep talking about strategy and and polls. And 
And yet there are serious differences on issues between the two. You earlier mentioned about parental control of schools, but abortion rights and vaccine mandates and and crime and jobs, uh, these are major issues separating the two candidates. Oh, exactly. But, you know, early on, um, the COVID vaccine issue took center stage in this campaign. And if you take a look at where the where the public is on this, they're with McAuliffe and they're not with Yunkin by overwhelming numbers. We're at like 55, 40 in terms of mask and vaccine mandates in Virginia. Uh, it's not even a close issue. If you ask whether or not abortion should remain safe or legal, once again, a huge advantage for McAuliffe in terms of where the public is on this campaign. Um, the challenge that McAuliffe faces is that as um, things have gotten a little better with COVID over the last few weeks, it's probably not as center stage in the campaign as it was in, mid- in the middle of September uh, on that front there. Um, but if this is an election simply about issues and where they stand, it seems to me that McAuliffe has a substantial lead in Virginia. The challenge is that the issue might also, or the campaign and the election might also be about the mood and anger and who's ticked off. And what you saw is that from 2016 to 2020, Democrats came out in large numbers in every possible election to send a message to Donald Trump that whenever they had the chance, Democrats in Virginia voted against Donald Trump, regardless of who was actually on the ballot. The Democrats worry now, and why some Democrats are chewing antacid tablets, is that they're worried that this election could be um, folks talking about Joe Biden, and that might be the, the Democrats who are perceived as the Republican Party. And for those individuals and those voters um, who may not have strong party allegiance, but are just frustrated with the political class regardless of who's in power, that's that's what's giving the Democrats anxiety today. I thought it was interesting, the fact that, I mean, abortion is always an interesting issue uh, in in campaigns. Both the pro-abortion rights and anti-abortion rights candidates bring out their voters, you know, their, their supporters on the issue. But it seems like while the McAuliffe camp is going all out on abortion rights, the Yunkin campaign's response is, is much more muted. What the Yunkin campaign will do on this issue is that their strategy and their tactics are going to be tailored to the kind of me- the kind of messaging they're going to use. They're never going to be uh, on metropolitan area television with an abortion message. What they will do, however, is that they will be courting the evangelicals assiduously in their mailings. One of the reasons that Glenn Youngkin obtained the nomination is that he did extraordinarily well in the nominating convention with evangelicals. They are very supportive of him. Youngkin makes it clear that he is pro-life and, in fact, has been very wary of putting any limits on what he would support as governor. Now, with a Democratic legislature, um, even if the, you know, if, if the uh, Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, we'll wind up with a gridlock in Virginia, with the Democratic legislature wanting to write Roe v. Wade into the law as, as a state law. But Yunkin, if he was governor, would certainly veto that. Um, so it's very clear that he is a strong pro-life uh, candidate, that he puts very few limits on what he would be willing to do except for the 
limitation that he would support it in case of rape and incest. Um, but by and large, this is a this is an issue where he will appeal very strongly with targeted mailings and targeted social media efforts, but will not use it in the major metropolitan areas on television. I don't know how important this issue is, but I, I just see it popping up all the time. Um, once again, uh, former Governor Doug Wilder, who's you know the nation's first black governor since Reconstruction, he's attacking McAuliffe, and and it's, it seems like Wilder, who is a Democrat, always manages to say negative things about Democratic candidates. What? Why does he do this? And and what, if anything, what, what you know, obviously the black turnout is going to be significant. How significant could Wilder's actions be? I think that's a, an uncertainty right now. But certain, uh, what we do know for sure is that um, Wilder's um, criticism of McAuliffe has just been escalating um, as the campaign goes on in the last week, gotten stronger and stronger, and where he uh, just made a statement about Glenn Youngkin's support for HBCU funding um, that he found to be very, very positive on this front, while again attacking McAuliffe, um, which he's done since McAuliffe got in the race for governor, basically suggested that he shouldn't have gotten in get in the race to, to run again, especially against um, several African-American Democratic opponents in the primary. Who, who, did, who did very poorly at the primary, by the way. Yeah, yeah. McAuliffe won, um, I, I believe, every jurisdiction in Virginia in the primary. He, he dominated that primary. And in many instances, he, he won significantly among African-American voters as well in the primary. So having said that, uh, the question is, will Wilder's um, statements have that influence on the election? Will it be able to be sufficient to counter, you might say, the activities of Stacey Abrams, Barack Obama, uh, Joe Biden, and all the heavyweights coming in on the Democratic side? Um, The Democrats don't seem to uh, believe it will, uh, but at the same time, what I'm seeing on social media is that the Republicans are again and again utilizing Wilder's statements and articles being written about Wilder uh, in the conservative press to make their point. I don't think the Republicans are necessarily talking or have, or have, the, have the ear of all the African-American voters in Virginia, who I think will largely support McAuliffe. But the question for the Democrats is, A, the big turnout among African-American voters, and B, Wilder's support among independent-minded Virginians um, of all races who like the fact that he was very fiscally conservative when he was governor. So many people are saying that what happens on November 2nd is going to send a message to the country for the 2022 midterms. But, you know, even if McAuliffe wins, running against Trump next year in, in Texas or Florida or Ohio you know, may not work. Tarring a Republican opponent with Trump won't work in red states. And, But more importantly, I think that no matter what happens Tuesday, next Tuesday, Democrats are going to have an uphill fight to retain the House and Senate next year. So we could talk all we want about about how important Virginia is, but the country is already going to go, could be tough sledding for the Democrats next year. It's just going to be tougher <laughs> And much tougher, I think, if if Glenn Youngkin is elected in Virginia. I mean, that will send a uh, 
you know, I've said that won't only be a wake-up call for the Democrats. It'll be as if someone uh, came in while they're sleeping and played, played Reveille on a trumpet within their bedrooms because of, you know, what that, what that would mean. At the same time, you know, one of the things that's really going to have an impact, let us say, on the House of Representatives is what happened, what's happening across the country in redistricting. And what's, what's interesting is that Virginia put forward this constitutional amendment that created what I would call a contraption of a redistricting commission that is having extraordinary difficulty reaching any agreement. And the likelihood is that the Virginia redistricting is actually going to be controlled now by the Virginia Supreme Court. And what this means is that the Democrats in Virginia, not all of whom supported this commission, but enough did to enable this commission to come into fruition, uh, is that the Democrats in Virginia, at least some Democrats then, contributed to a situation where the party had control of the governorship and the two houses of the General Assembly for the first time in a generation and has effectively ceded that control of redistricting over to a state Supreme Court, most of whom were appointed by Republican majorities in the House or by Republican governors, in the Assembly or by Republican governors. So unlike other states where the Republicans are going to use their power over redistricting to help control the next House of Representatives election, the Democrats in Virginia, at least several Democrats, contributed to a situation where the party is not using the power it would have had over redistricting. And one more reason why the race for governor is so important, obviously, for both parties. Exactly. Bob Holsworth is the managing partner of the firm Decide Smart and a leading analyst on Virginia politics. Bob, it's, it's always great having you on The Political Junkie. Ken, thanks so much, and um, look forward to seeing what happens on Tuesday. I want to sink to the bottom with you. I want to sink to the bottom with you. The ocean is big and blue. I just want to sink to the bottom with you. Iowa has been the first state to kick off the presidential nominating process for the past 40-plus years. Every now and then, there have been efforts to move another state in front of it on the calendar with the same arguments. It's too white, critics say. There is no diversity. It doesn't reflect the Democratic Party's demographics. Another argument against Iowa's standing as first in the nation is the error-filled processes that occurred in the past three cycles. In the 2012 Republican caucuses, Mitt Romney was declared the winner. Let's go right to the results there. Mitt Romney has just been declared by the Republican Party here the winner, 30,015 votes. But a few days later, party officials realized the counting error and declared Rick Santorum the winner. It was the Democrats' turn for confusion four years later, when Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders ran against each other. That's when the Democratic Party counting went haywire, leaving nobody happy. This was the open of the Des Moines Register Caucus Night broadcast. Hello, I'm Carol Hunter, News Director at the Des Moines Register, and with me is Kathy Obradovich, the Register's political columnist. And we're here today to talk about all of the confusion and questions that have arisen about the accuracy of the Democrats' count on caucus night. 
And if that wasn't enough, it took Iowa Democrats days before they could decide who won the 2020 caucuses. On day two, the party was still only releasing the results in piecemeal. Here's Jake Tapper leading it off on CNN, followed by an exasperated Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and Amy Klobuchar. As the waiting game goes on, we're hearing from the Democratic candidates themselves about the chaos and confusion that has rocked the first major political contest of the year. I am disappointed. I suspect I could speak for all the candidates, all of their supporters, and the people of Iowa. Uh, that the Iowa Democratic Party has not been able to come up uh, with timely uh, election results. Can't understand why that happens, but it has happened. We had a bumpy start to the Democratic process yesterday in Iowa. I'm someone that thrives in chaos. You want a steady hand in chaos, right? We are still awaiting the results from Iowa. If you needed a reason to remove Iowa as the leadoff state, Look no further than these screw-ups. If they couldn't get their act together, the argument goes, should they be given the opportunity to start the process? But National Democrats are displeased with Iowa for other reasons. It is not, shall we say, known for its diversity. Iowa is 83% white, and 91% of Democratic attendees in the 2020 caucuses were white. That's not the Democratic Party nationwide. The DNC is about to put together its calendar for 2024, and Iowa, both for its snafus and lack of diversity, may be removed from its lead-off perch. Nevada, which is state number three in terms of leading off the presidential vote, is a state much more representative of America and more hospitable to Democratic demographics. To make the state even more voter-friendly, Nevada, with the backing of former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, has recently switched from caucuses to primaries. While the Democrats try to figure out what to do, Harry Reid already has an answer. Move Nevada up to number one. And he's here to explain why. Senator Reid, welcome to The Political Junkie. Good to be with you. Thank you so much. Well, you know, there was never a problem with Iowa or New Hampshire going first. You know, back when the U.S. had a white population that was similar to those two states. But while the U.S. has had major demographics change in the past several decades, Iowa and New Hampshire have stayed overwhelmingly white. So the argument goes that is not representative of the country. The number one question, as far as I'm concerned, is caucuses. They're unfair, undemocratic. We need to get rid of all of them. We need to get rid of all of them. That's why I'm so glad we're doing that in Nevada. The Democrats complain about what the Republicans are doing in Texas and Georgia to make it harder to vote. It's very hard to vote in those Iowa caucuses. So if, if the caucuses are controlled by a handful of party faithful, that's all. It's not a Democratic process. But the Democratic Party was do, has been doing it since at least 1976. It goes Actually, it goes back to 72. Why now? Why make the change now? Well, the New York Yankees are really good. Why should we give them an automatic win? Can't do that. Uh, we need to have a primary season that is representative of the country. You can't do that by having Iowa and New Hampshire going first. It was okay. That was okay 50 years ago. But it's not, any, not okay anymore. Make the case for Nevada. Nevada is a state of diversity. We are represent um, Hispanic, fastest growing Asian population in America, of a robust black community. Just a state that represents what the country is all about now. When this primary was set up 40 years ago, um, this nation was really a white nation. It's not that way anymore. We're diverse. 
Will President Biden have any say in the process? Because it's, it's my understanding that he's no fan of Iowa either, where he finished fifth in 2008 and fourth in 2020. I think that uh, I talked to the president's uh, staff on more than one occasion. And uh, he, of course, has been through the mill at Iowa and how unfair it is. He's going to be all in favor of changing it. Now, have you talked to Tom Harkin and other Democrats from Iowa? Because I assume they're going to fight to remain first. Well, I think they can fight all they want, but I don't think it's going to happen. And what about Jim Clyburn? I mean, he can make the case that South Carolina should go first, and and so might Jamie Harrison, who's the new DNC chair. I've I've talked to Jim Clyburn on more than one occasion. He and I agree. We need to have South Carolina, Nevada, a number of other states move up more quickly. You know, I always think think of everybody spends so much time and so much money in Iowa, but you know, Joe Biden lost in Iowa, lost in New Hampshire. Dick Gephardt won in Iowa. I mean, Iowa is not necessarily a kingmaker. It's a kingbreaker, not a maker. Kingbreaker is damage the primary process big time. Is it possible that with the, because I, I read a quote from somebody, I think it was Dave Nagel from Iowa, and he said, well, if they want to go for, in front of us, we're going to go in front of them. And is it possible they're going to keep Going, moving their dates up to keep others from getting in front of them, and <laughs> we start the process in next year. Even the answer, the answer is yes. That's what New Hampshire's law is. The law in New Hampshire is that, but they can do it. But it becomes meaningless when you realize that the election in New Hampshire, Iowa, is not representative of the country. I mean, the DNC could do what it did in uh, I think it was two thousand and eight in Florida and Michigan. They wanted to go first. And they said, well, you know, the candidates shouldn't campaign there, and they're not going to count. So the DNC could do that, right? Yes, they could. Does your gut tell you that there will be a change? I mean, between the problems with the count and the fact that it's a caucus uh, and the fact that it's the demographics are so different, do you think that Iowa will be toppled from the first in the nation? Yes, I do. I think that uh, Iowa and New Hampshire coming one and two are not good for the country. And I think that... uh, you have those two states who have no diversity. They've been okay 50 years ago, but not anymore. Can I ask you one final question? Um, you led the Senate Democrats for 12 years before retiring after 2016. Have you been watching what's going on now, you know, the effort to pass the Biden agenda? Do you feel sorry for Chuck Schumer? Do you have advice for him? No, Chuck is a man of uh, a wise man. He's doing a good job with that caucus. Harry Reid is the former Senate Majority Leader from Nevada. He was first elected to the Senate in 1986 and served until his retirement 30 years later. He led the Democrats, Senate Democrats, for the last 12 years of his tenure. Senator Reid, it was just great having you on the program. I hope you call me again. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. 
Political Junkies made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please be safe. And if there's a candidate you like on Tuesday, please vote. I'll see you soon.